Here we are tonight, right? So I'm going to ask you to, if you don't mind, draw on your distant memory banks to the last time I had the opportunity to stand up here. And we were in Ephesians chapter 2. And over the period of, of a little bit of time, as I had opportunity, we worked through the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. Just a really, really great book. I know uh, many of you in here have a great appreciation for Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And actually tonight, then, I would like to go back to the book of Ephesians, except we're going to fast forward a little bit to chapter 5. The last time I had the opportunity to stand up here and go through Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at Paul's focus on building up the unity of the church in reminding the believers there of where they had come from. This is who you used to be. This is who you are now in Christ. Now take it and use that to develop unity within the body with other believers. Now, the book of Ephesians is a really unique book, obviously, within the canon of Scripture. It's six chapters long, right? And the first three chapters are almost exclusively devoted to doctrine, The first three chapters, the first half of the book of Ephesians, do not contain really any specific commands. It is just Paul simply expositing doctrine of the doctrine of salvation, who you used to be, who you are now in Christ. And then when you get to Ephesians chapter 4, the tenor and the tone of the book dramatically shifts. Not then because Paul leaves the doctrine behind, but he takes everything that has been discussed and everything that he has taught and communicated to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1 through 3, and he says, okay, now based on this, here's how you live it out within the body. And so whereas chapters 1 through 3 do not include hardly any commands, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are almost nothing but commands. Because of this, everything that we learned before, now do this, and be this, and think this way, and act this way. So tonight, what I want to do is go ahead and actually just jump ahead a couple of chapters in the book of Ephesians to Ephesians chapter 5, and again, as I have opportunity, maybe in the year 2026 or 2027 or something like that, uh, we'll make it all the way through Ephesians chapter 5, because this is a really rich chapter and one that I have really, really come to love and enjoy, and there's some really, really great truth here. So let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 5, and tonight we're going to just look at the very first two verses of Ephesians chapter 5. I will go ahead and read them. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What we're going to look at tonight in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 is two specific commands that we are given. The command to be imitators of God and the command to walk in love. And I think obviously there is some very profound and deep and very significant truth that these two commands hold for us even as a local body here at Lakeside Community Chapel. The first verse of Ephesians chapter 5 commands us or says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, the very first word of that verse, therefore, is a tremendously important word. Because what it does 
is it points us back to the previous chapter, actually the very last verse of Ephesians chapter 4. Now we know that when Paul wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus, he did not write it out in chapter and verse form, right? He didn't sit down and write Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 and then verse 2 and then go on, oh now I've completed Ephesians chapter 6. No, he wrote it as an entire letter meant to be read all in one sitting. We know those chapters and verses were added for our benefit later so it was easier to find stuff when we wanted to. I think this is one of those times where we have to be careful because our chapter division might get in the way of the really important thought that Paul was writing about. See, Paul didn't go ahead and just jump in and start a new thought in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, therefore be imitators of God. No, we have to read it as if we're coming on from chapter 4 verse 32, so let's go back and read that. Chapter 4 verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then it doesn't stop. And then we walk away and we jump back into chapter 5 verse 1 a little bit later. No, we continue. Therefore, going back to the command in verse 32, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. So therefore, you be imitators of God as beloved children. So this therefore then in chapter 5 verse 1 points us back to chapter 4 verse 32 and the command there, you forgive one another just as you have been forgiven. Do this and be imitators of your heavenly Father. So if we jump back and we look at chapter 4 verse 32, we as Christians here at Lakeside Community Chapel within the local body are commanded to three specific attitudes or actions towards each other. Look at what it says, chapter 4, verse 32. It says, be kind. We are commanded to kindness. Be tenderhearted. Again, another heart attitude, kindness and tenderheartedness, a sympathetic, empathetic disposition towards other believers. One that is kindly disposed, that is disposed to do good, to think good rather than to think evil. And out of that then, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we have kindness, we have tenderheartedness, and then these are worked out, these internal attitudes are worked out in the external action of forgiving one another. Forgiveness is the sum and the outworking of kindness and tenderheartedness. Those are attitudes, and forgiveness then is a conscientious action that stems from those attitudes. And what we come to learn then is that these attitudes are reflection of God, our Heavenly Father as Christians, and we attain them by imitating their source. Now, as we looked at way back in Ephesians chapter 2, one of Paul's goals for the church at Ephesus is unity within the body. Everybody on the same page with the same heart and the same mind moving towards the same goal. These attitudes of kindness and tenderheartedness that work themselves out in forgiveness build and preserve unity within the body of Christ. You cannot have unity without kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. You cannot have unity without them, and you can't help but have unity where these are overall present in a body. 
We're not going to take the time to read the entirety of the passage, but all we would have to do is go back to the fourth chapter of Ephesians, verses 1 through 16, where Paul again is making a plea for unity within the body. And I just want to read a couple of verses. Okay, it wouldn't hurt you to go back and read the whole thing if you have time later tonight. But for example, chapter 4, verse 3, where he implores them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, that's going to demand kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. If we look at chapter 4, verse 16, he tells them, from whom the whole body, talking about Christ, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body, talking about the local church, grow so that it builds itself up in what? In love. Okay, so this is a consistent theme throughout the book of Ephesians. And that therefore, in chapter 5, verse 1, makes the command that we are looking at to be imitators of God very, very specific. It's not nebulous. It's not as if Paul is just saying, you know, beginning a new independent thought, just go be an imitator of God, whatever that means to you. As best you can, go imitate your heavenly Father. No, when he says to be imitators of God... This is directing us to a very specific attribute of God, really making it a command to be an imitator of your heavenly Father by being a forgiving person when you have been wronged. We are to show our kindness as believers here in the local church and tenderheartedness by forgiving those who have wronged us just as our heavenly Father has forgiven us. And so when he says to be imitators of God as beloved children, when we imitate God in this way, it will lead us to forgive others in the same way that it led God to forgive us. As John MacArthur put it in his commentary on Ephesians, he said the extent of our love, really for God and for others, is the extent of our ability to forgive There are very few things that could mark love or be an indicator of love among a group of diverse people like the local church more so than forgiveness. And our forgiveness, as we see here in Ephesians, ought to look like God's forgiveness. Just like it says in chapter 4, verse 32, just as God in Christ forgave you. So I think we would be warranted here to pause and consider what is it about God's forgiveness for us as believers that makes it so special. For those of us who have come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and received full pardon for our sins against a holy God, what is it, what is special about His forgiveness? I want to highlight three things to consider about the forgiveness of God. First of all, And our forgiveness, as it follows, the forgiveness of God was free, right? It cost us nothing. God forgave us when we were his enemies. I want to jump back here to highlight this point to the book of Romans, another letter of Paul, Romans chapter 5, and look with me at verses 6 through 8. 
a very familiar passage to many of us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for his friends. He didn't die for those who love God. He died for the ungodly, for wretched sinners. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die, talking from a human perspective. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We were not righteous. We were not good. Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners, for those who hated him. God forgave us when we were his enemies and even forgave the sins that to this day as believers we are unaware of. That's something to consider, right? It's one thing, and it is a very special and gracious thing, to be forgiven of sins that we're aware of against God. But what about all the countless sins that all of us have committed that we don't even know? We've been forgiven even of those. God's forgiveness is completely free, no strings attached. Not as if you have to be good enough. He died, he sent his son to die when you were his avowed enemy. His forgiveness is free, his forgiveness is complete, and that he forgives all of our sins. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. As believers in Christ, there is no sin in our life, past, present, future, conscious, unconscious, aware, unawares, that is not covered by the blood of Christ and by the grace of God, whereby he looks at us and says, because of what my son did, I forgive you. His forgiveness is free, it is complete, and it is also unconditional. God forgives the repentant sinner with no strings attached or without making anyone work for it. In fact, he says, if you do try to work for it, you won't have it because then you'll have reason to glory in yourself and not in me. Look back with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul writes previously to the Ephesian church, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and nothing else. It is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if we are to forgive others, just as God in Christ forgave us, we are to be people who forgive freely, even to those, or extending to those, who may be our enemies, who may not even be aware of their sins against us. Our forgiveness should be complete. It should be entire. In the same way that all of your sins were forgiven by God because of His Son, Jesus Christ, so should you forgive all of the sins by others against you. And it should be unconditional. should be with no strings attached. It shouldn't be, well, if, if you do this, then I will forgive you. Is that how God forgave us in Christ? 
Absolutely not. There was no work. There was no owning. It was unconditional. It was free. It was complete. Something else to consider. Well, we bring the gospel aspect into our forgiveness of others. How can somebody forgive like this? And this is something that comes with a new heart. And with a heart that is sensitive, that is spiritually enlightened, that comes with the new birth to those who trust Christ. We can forgive because we understand, if we truly understand the gospel, we understand that anything that another believer may do against us, no matter how bad or how foul, Jesus Christ has already paid the penalty for that sin. You see, if another believer within the church sins against us, legitimately sins, it's not us first and foremost that they've sinned against, right? It's their heavenly Father. They need to be forgiven by Him. The biggest problem is not that they have offended us, but that they've offended Him by their sin. But what we understand is that when they have been forgiven by God, that sin that they have committed against us, maybe too, secondarily, is already paid for by the blood of Christ. And on that basis, we can forgive them. There is no sin, past, present, or future, that has not been forgiven of the believer in Christ. And who are we Who are we to withhold forgiveness against one who has sinned against us when God, who they have sinned against far more greatly, has already extended that forgiveness? Is that not the height of presumption? Look with me uh, back to the book of 1 John. If we flip just a little bit ahead. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 He says, I am writing, the Apostle John, to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Writing to the little children, the local church there that he was writing to. I'm writing to you because your sins, all of them, are forgiven for His name's sake. The book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes to the Colossians church, He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. There is no sin for anyone who professes faith in Christ and trusts Him in repentance for forgiveness of their sins that will not be forgiven and has not been forgiven of all of their sins. And so understanding in and and faith in the gospel enables us to, as believers, be forgiving people. Because we understand that when we've been wronged by another believer, that Jesus Christ has already paid the penalty for that sin. And we can allow that person to go free without exacting any more punishment. It's been dealt with. Jesus died for their sin in the same way that he did for mine. And in the same way that Jesus does not exact any more punishment on me for my sins, so I will not exact punishment on that person for their sins against me. 
Faith in Jesus as the judge who will ultimately right all wrongs enables us to be forgiving. When as Christians in the local church as it relates to unbelievers, when we seek our own vengeance or our own punishment or try to exact our own justification when we've been wronged, we only muddy the waters. Leave it up to Christ. Leave it up to Jesus. He is the righteous judge. If there is anything, we can be confident of this, if there is anything, any wrong that has been perpetrated against us that needs to be made right, Jesus will do the best job of making it right when he returns and we stand before him. Anything that you could do in your own power on this earth in exacting judgment or righting wrongs that have been perpetrated against you is only going to make things more difficult on you. Trust Jesus to do that. He knows. He knows your heart. He knows the heart of everyone in here. Leave it up to him as the righteous judge. He'll make it right. But when we as Christians express or harbor bitterness and withhold forgiveness in our hearts towards other Christians, we sin because we have now allowed selfish hatred to control us rather than the Holy Spirit. And really, ultimately, what do we do to the sacrifice of Christ? We profane it by exacting punishment for a sin whose penalty has already been paid by Jesus. So I would encourage us tonight, if we profess to believe the gospel, if we profess to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, then live it out by being forgiving, by understanding, by having a view of your fellow believers that no matter what they could do to me, I, first of all, have done worse to my Savior and wronged Him far more greatly. And their sin has been forgiven by him, so it ought to be forgiven by me. Just as the depth of God's love is shown by how much he has forgiven, the depth of our love for God and for others is shown by how much we forgive. I want to look at the book of 1 Peter here real quick. 1 Peter chapter 4. Find it here real quick. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Wonderful verse. Above all, as Peter writes to the church, keep loving one another earnestly. Notice, love there. Love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Well, what word do we know that could be synonymous with covering a multitude of sins? Forgiveness. Love one another earnestly. Forgive, 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 forgive. One of the things that is interesting to me, maybe as a side note here, is that this emphasis that we see on forgiveness here in Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 4, what's the assumption here? The assumption is if you are in a local church like Lakeside Community Chapel for any length of time, chances are someone is going to sin against you. You are going to be hurt along the way. Why is that? Because even though we are a group of sinners, or a group of redeemed people, we are redeemed sinners, right? 
That sin is still present with us until Jesus returns and frees us entirely from this sin that is still within us. And because of that, we are still prone to do bad things to each other from time to time, right? Some of you might be able to look around the room tonight and see faces of those who have wronged you. Some of you might be able to look into the pulpit tonight and see the face of someone who has wronged you. That is the reality of the world that we live in and the sin that still dwells within us and the sinfulness that exists around us. There are those within the church, you are going to be hurt probably. You are going to have cause legitimately to forgive. But instead of just throwing our hands up and saying, you know what, I'm done with that church. Okay, there's sinful people there. I'm going on to the next one. Well, until you find out that there's sinful people there too who are capable of being equally as spiteful and hateful okay, and letting their guard down. Okay, why not be a forgiving person? Why not? Just as God in Christ forgave you, forgive others. So what it comes down to, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God. The person who sees and has experienced the greatness of the forgiveness of God's love in Christ will imitate their heavenly father by being a forgiving person. Because notice, be imitators of God. And what's the second part? As beloved children. Children naturally imitate their fathers. My son had a birthday this past week. He turned nine. Nine years ago this past week, I became a father for the first time. And those of you in here who are fathers, I think, can identify with the next statement that I'm going to make. The fact that you do see your children imitating you and acting like you many times is simultaneously one of the best things ever and the most terrifying things ever, right? It's great when you're like, that's one of my good habits. Okay, yeah, do more of that. And it's bad when it's on one of your bad days. And you see something come out in your kids where you go, oh, yeah, that was me. Okay, well, God is our heavenly father doesn't ever have any cause to be terrified when his children imitate him, right? We meet it with chagrin from time to time because we know that we are sinful people and sometimes we act out in sinful ways and sometimes our children learn bad habits from us. But we never learn bad habits from our Heavenly Father, do we? Children imitate their fathers. There's also a question here. If you are generally a vindictive or unforgiving person, based on this command, based on what we see in the Scriptures, it's a fair question as to whether you truly know God as your heavenly Father through Christ. The one who has really been forgiven and understands how much they have been forgiven and what it costs their heavenly Father to forgive them will, generally speaking, be known as a loving and forgiving person. Now, again, we all sin from time to time. There are times where I have been hateful 
and vindictive in my heart towards other believers. But is that your general practice? If the general pattern of your life is to hold grudges, to be vindictive, and to try to seek your own revenge, how can you truly say that you are the child of a forgiving father? I think this verse calls us to some very thoughtful introspection tonight. So we see the command in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God, really, if we're filling in the blanks, by being a forgiving person. We see the second command that we want to look at in verse 2, where Paul says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The second command, very simply stated, after be imitators of God, is to walk in love towards our fellow believers. Our love for other believers. And yes, again, this is not just nebulous. This isn't just a general group or a general thought here. Really, you can look at it as our love for the other members of Lakeside Community Chapel is the most clear evidence that we truly know God. I can think of no better passage in the New Testament to illustrate this other than 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-12. through 12. And I do want to take the time to read that tonight. 1 John chapter 4, 7-12. through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now we're jumping right to the middle of a thought here, but the entire context here is when John is commanding the believers to love, he's talking about love for other believers, love for the brethren. The one who loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for all of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, though, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Again, as John writes to the believers here, he says the most clear way to know whether you truly know God or not is to look at the question of, do I love other believers in the same way that my heavenly Father loves them? Our love is the most clear evidence that we know God. What do we see about God's love here in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-12? through 12? First, that love, I want to point out, is not a condition for knowing God. It's not as if, well, you love, and by this you earn God's favor. No, it's an evidence that we know God. Verse 7, love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Again, the whole idea of children imitate their fathers. If you have truly been born into God's family, you're going to act like a member of that family. Conversely, one whose life is not characterized by love evidences that they do not know God. That doesn't come from me. That's pretty clearly stated in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, when he says, anyone who does not love does not know God. End of story. 
Hey, if our lives are not generally characterized by love for other believers, then how can we say that we know God? Because God is love. God tangibly, we see in following verses, demonstrated his love by sacrificing his son. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest or was shown clearly to us that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world so that we might live through him. God just didn't say, well, I love you and leave us in our sinful predicament that had us all on the road to hell. No, he said, I love you, therefore I'm going to do something about this and I'm going to send my son to fix this problem. God's love caused him to make us right with him at great cost to himself. We say that God's love was free to us. It's not free to him. It cost him the most dear prize that could ever be his only begotten son who he sent into the world knowingly that he was giving him up to death for his enemies. The grace, the love of God costs us nothing, but it cost him everything. Because God loved in this way, we're responsible to love others in this way. Verse 11, again, Beloved, if God so loved us, if this is true, and it is, we ought also to love one another. We have a responsibility. If you sit here tonight and you say, I know God through Jesus Christ, I've been forgiven, I am on my way to heaven because of what Jesus Christ did to me, then you have an obligation to love as God has loved you. And verse 12 is a wonderful truth. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. The idea here is, though, that if we love one another, when those within and without the church look at us and see the way that we as professing believers love and care for one another, in that way, we see God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected or made manifest or shown in us. So even though we can't look tonight and see, physically see God, we're not present with him, there ought to be an aspect of feeling his presence when we gather together. Because his love abides in us and it's reflected in the way that we treat one another. A gathering together, life in the local body as the church at Lakeside Community Chapel ought to, in some sense, be a foretaste of heaven. And the presence of God that we will experience there because he abides in us. And when we show love to other believers, that's a taste of that. Our love for others is to reflect the love of Christ for us. And again, in thinking about the love of God in Christ, it's unconditional. God loved us when we were his enemies. There are no strings attached It's not as if God loves us as long as we don't wrong him or as long as we don't do anything too bad and then he goes back to not loving us. No. This love is free and unconditional. Much ink has been spilt, volumes written, about the words for love that are used in the original language, in the New Testament Greek. You see, in English we just say, 
I love. And that love covers a wide variety of meanings. If I'm saying I love my wife, it's the same word. And I could say I love pizza, and it's the same word. And I could legitimately say that I love both of those things, but we understand those are very different loves, right? Or at least you would hope so. I love my wife very differently than I love pizza. It's just one word. But in the New Testament, the Greeks, they had many different words to describe many different types of love. Back in that time, and I was speaking Greek, the common language, I wouldn't use the same word to say, I love Stephanie and I love pizza. They probably, they didn't even have pizza back then, and it was a very sad world. (laughs) That aside, this word used to describe the love of God in Christ is the word for unconditional love. It is used to, to describe that type of love where no matter who you are or what you do against me, I will still love you. This love that I have for you is not conditioned upon anything in you or that you are. It is free and unconditional. The love of God in Christ for us is also sacrificial. That Jesus Christ gave himself up for us, so should we be willing to sacrifice freely to meet the needs of others. It's very unlikely that any of us would be called on to die or to lay down our lives for another member of Lakeside Community Chapel at any point in time in the near future. Hey, that sacrifice is probably unlikely, but what about other sacrifices? What do we do? What are we willing to do or not do to build up our fellow believers and meet their needs? It's also to be a sanctifying love. The love that we are called to towards our fellow believers when Paul says to walk in love is the kind of love that builds others up. Love does not tear others down. And when we say building others up, that is the idea of sanctification. We ought to be actively seeking day in, day out to make our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to help them become more like Christ. When you come to church, or as you interact with your brothers and sisters in in your day-to-day life throughout the week, do other people love Jesus more after they interact with you? Are they more encouraged in their faith after their conversation with you, or are they discouraged? The type of love that we are called to when, when Paul tells us to walk in love is a sanctifying love, one that builds others up, and not just in a fluffy, hey, you're great, you're special, you're a snowflake type of way, but to help them to be more like Christ, to encourage them in their faith, to come alongside them and build them up and bear their burdens. Chapter 5, verse 2 says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The language, we don't really have time to expound this tonight, but the language of Paul here at the end of chapter 5, verse 2, where it talks about a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, is actually a callback to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus, chapters 1, 2, and 3 specifically. And we don't have time tonight to go back and read the first three chapters of the book of Leviticus. Some of you have worried looks on your faces. I would encourage you to go back and do it. 
because it impacts the way that we understand these verses here that we're looking at tonight. But in the first three chapters of the book of Leviticus, there's three specific offerings that are gone over in detail. The burnt offering, the meal offering, or also known as the grain offering, and the peace offering. That God told Israel on a regular basis, you are to offer these specific types of offerings. And what do we know as New Testament believers? They point us to Christ. The burnt offering, for example, in Leviticus chapter 1, points us to the total devotion, Christ's total devotion to God in giving his entire life to obey and please the Father. The meal offering of Ephesians chapter 2 depicted the perfection of Christ. The peace offering of Leviticus chapter 3 and also in chapter 4 depicted the act of Christ, his sacrificial death, as making peace between God and man. And what you see, if you take the time to go back to Leviticus chapters 1, 2, and 3, what you will see is repeated over and over and over in those verses is the phrase, a soothing aroma to the Lord or a pleasing or acceptable sacrifice. When the people of Israel in the Old Testament offered these sacrifices out of right hearts to God, he said it is a pleasing aroma. It is an acceptable sacrifice. And the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was the ultimate acceptable sacrifice. The one that the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was meant to point to was the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 that when Jesus gave himself up for us, this was a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice to God. Why? Because of the spirit in which Christ offered it. What this shows us is that every act done, when we obey this command to walk in love as Christ loved us, every act that we do in love towards another believer is an imitation of Christ's sacrifice and is pleasing to God. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. I'm going to take the time to read that tonight. Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, he says, whoever gives one of these little ones, talking about his disciples, even a cup of cold water, Because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, this person will by no means lose his reward. Every act of love that we do towards other believers here at Lakeside Community Chapel, if we do it out of love for Christ, if we do it out of a heart that says, because I have been loved by Christ and been shown so much, therefore I'm going to act in love towards other people, towards this person, towards that person. That is pleasing to our our Heavenly Father. He says that individual will by no means lose his reward. God does not take that lightly. That pleases the heart of our Heavenly Father. And the person who has experienced the love of Christ will in turn walk in it in such a way that they show the same type of love to others. So we've seen two commands tonight as we wrap up our time. Be imitators of God. By being a loving and forgiving person and walk in love. In the same way that you have been loved by Christ, so also 
Walk in love towards other believers. And I want to encourage us tonight. Again, it's easy to take a passage like this and look at it and say, okay, I want to be forgiving, I want to be loving. But remember, when Paul wrote this letter, he wrote it to a local church body. A group of churches there in the region of Ephesus he wrote that to this church specifically so that they could act it out there in their church. So should we. That's how we should take it. Don't just say, well, I'm going to be loving, forgiving, walk out of here and forget. No. How can you be forgiving and loving towards the person sitting to your left or to your right or towards this guy? How are we going to live that out? Are you a forgiving person as we leave tonight? Does your forgiveness of others when you have been wronged look like God's forgiveness of you? Is it free? Is it complete? Is it unconditional? Do you forgive at all? Is your life characterized by love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Does it look like the love of Christ? Is it tangible, unconditional, sacrificial, sanctifying? For those who profess to know Christ, are you a forgiving person? Are you a loving person? I realize that there may be those who are hearing me tonight that do not know Christ, that have never repented of your sins and trusted Him in forgiveness and faith in His death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf for salvation. The things that we are talking about tonight as far as forgiveness and love We recognize it's impossible for someone who does not know God as their heavenly father through Christ to show kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, to love others in this manner in which we are commanded in Ephesians chapter 5. Now this is not to say that an unbeliever can't forgive someone to a certain extent, can't love others. We all recognize that that is the case. It's not because they have been forgiven. It's because we're all created in God's image. And we still, even though we're sinful, we still bear some of that image. There is still a common grace that God extends to all of us, unbelievers included, that allows everyone to some degree to experience some forgiveness and love. But here's the thing. That common grace that you experience will not avail you when you stand before the righteous judge. You need to experience God's special grace available only to those who trust in the death of Jesus Christ on their behalf and believe that God raised him from the dead. Confess that with your mouth and believe in your heart and repent and turn from your sins and you will experience this grace that forgives all your sins and will enable you to actually obey this command in the way that it is written to be truly forgiving and truly loving. We are commanded to turn to Christ in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we obey this gospel command, God gives us a new heart that is capable of the type of love and forgiveness that is a pleasing offering to Him. So for anyone who may be here tonight who does not know Christ I would plead with you to turn to him tonight in repentance and faith for forgiveness of sins. You will know his forgiveness. You will know his love in Christ. Then and only then will you be equipped with the new heart to love and forgive others 
as you have been forgiven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us in it, for showing us your Son. And Father, thank you for the forgiveness and love that is available in him by grace through faith. And Father, I pray, Lord, for every believer who is here tonight, that you would help us, Father, to live out the forgiveness and the love that we have in Christ in our lives day to day with those who are around us, Father, that you would equip us and help us by your grace to be forgiving and loving people. And Father, I pray for anyone who is here tonight who does not know Christ, who has not experienced your forgiveness of sins that is available through him. I pray, Father, that you would give them a heart of faith, that you would open their eyes, that you would help them, Lord, to trust him in repentance and faith in him and him alone for their salvation, even tonight. Father, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for our sins. We pray for your grace this week, that you would watch out for us, that you would be with us as we go out our separate ways and that you would bring us all back safely next Sunday to gather together as a family to worship you. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.